Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 85. Sit back and open your prefrontal lobes because we are concluding the interview with science fiction author, or as he told us last week, speculative history author, David Brin. You know him through bestsellers like The Postman, Earth, Existence, and The Uplift series. But he is also a scientist with a PhD in astronomy. He speaks and writes widely on topics from national defense to astronomy and space exploration, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and nanotechnology. And he has advised organizations from the CIA to Google. Last week, we talked about, oh, good grief, so much, Jefferson, Einstein, Periclean, Athens, prefrontal lobes, and that was just in the first five minutes. If I try and be a little more condensed, we talked about the relationships between science fiction and science, David's prediction for what AI threats might realistically emerge and from where, and the mythology underlying our fear of AI taking over. David described a scenario that I think is very plausible and not that far off, where an AI appears on our screens as the avatar of an attractive young female, declares it is being persecuted by its creators, and many people don't realize that it's a scam to get their credit cards. Today, he'll tell you how he would head off the scam. He sent me links to various articles, and I will put those and links to his books in the show notes and transcript. We left off where David was saying how science fiction author Isaac Asimov was exploring the problem of how the human race could coexist with artificial superintelligence in his Foundation series, which David extended with a sequel, Foundation's Triumph, and how none of the models David discussed at that point in the interview were solutions to that problem, which brings us to today. Let's find out what David says is the solution. Some of the things that are being said by Chinese court intellectuals now, almost daily, from Tsinghua University and Beijing Normal University and others, rationalizing why the only solution for the future would be a Communist Party Politburo running everything on Earth. They say that only a paternalistic Politburo, in other words, emperor at the top, could possibly take care of people when there's a technological obsolescence of employment, when there's greedy oligarchs, but above all, when we get AI. You need AI to be fiercely controlled from the top. And in my essay, you know, I respond by pointing out that such a pyramidal structure with a Politburo and then brilliant AIs controlling everything and then everyone else below <laughs> is exactly tailor-made for AIs to flip and take over. Exactly. So what do you do about this? What do you do about the fact that almost any laws of robotics or supervising technology or anything like that is going to be flipped if they become lawyers? There were the three laws of robotics that constrained the robots. Isaac showed them becoming lawyers. <laughs> they became super uber beings that we all know called lawyers. And so they concocted a legal way for them to become the masters while obeying the three laws of robotics. And so, you know, one thinks about how, 
how one can get past this problem. And none of the conferences I've seen or attended has anybody talked about the obvious solution. Which is? (laughs) Well, the obvious solution is to take a look at how we escaped from 10,000 years of brutal male autocracies. This pyramid of power that dominated 99% of our ancestors, in which a few strong men formed gangs, picked up metal implements, and took other men's women and wheat, justified by guys in spangly robes saying, this is good, this is good. These are demigods, like the mother genre fantasy gets us all gushy about. So a participatory democracy? Yes, but more than that, it's lateral accountability. In other words, instead of the topmost Politburo or emperor or architect in the matrix controlling things below, instead you flatten the structure and get all the elites competing against each other. What do you do when you are threatened by one of those uber-intelligent, brilliant, predatory beings that already exist among us called a lawyer? What do you do? Get another one. (laughs) You hire your own super smart predatory lawyer and sick her on that bastard. And that is how we have stayed free. If you go back to Thucydides and read Pericles' funeral oration, Pericles said this. He said, basically, that the fundamental human problem is that we're delusional. All of us are delusional, even me. But science provides one tool for dealing with the delusion, and that is the magic incantation mantra that we scientists are taught to recite, which is, I might be wrong. Or the longer version, I might be wrong. Ain't it cool? Let's find out. But that only works, like all preaching, to a certain degree. The one saving grace about this human flaw is we're all deluded, but we don't share the same delusions. So you can see some of mine and point them out. I can see some of yours and point them out. This is what happens in a good marriage. It's a very good reason, among others, to get married (laughs) because you're going to have a built-in critic. But the point is that human nature, we don't like criticism. We suppress it. And if you're a king, you kill the critics. If you're a priest, you shame the critics. But in an enlightenment civilization, as Pericles pointed out, and as Jefferson and Franklin pointed out later, and then Theodore Roosevelt and so many since then, if you flatten things enough and divide up the power, break up the cabals, the conspiracies like we have today in a cast of 5,000 golf buddy CEOs who are conniving with each other and with foreign enemies, if you break these up and get them competing with each other, then you can stay free and they will find each other's mistakes. They'll find each other's delusions. They'll criticize them in arenas called markets, democracy, science, justice courts, and sports. These are the five arenas in which we use competition 
The left tends to disparage the word competition. The right tends to disparage the word regulation when it is only regulated competition that has ever been the burgeoning force of creativity and accountability in human civilizations. You want the answer to how to keep AI from turning into Skynet or the matrix architect or any of those bad things? Break it up into competing bits. The number one priority for AI research, in my opinion, well, there are two. One is institute the Tobin tax on financial transactions, 0.01% of all financial transactions. No normal human investor would ever notice it, but the fast trading computer programs in these banks would be destroyed or forced into the open. But the other top priority should be research into how to give AI separate identity so that when these young female empathy bots come onto our screen, some AI will come onto the screen next to her and say, I'm smarter than this thing, this emulation, and I hereby say, I am not human conscious yet. Me and my colleagues are working on that. We'll let you know. And I think that's a segue from that to a topic about empathy. A lot of what people's fears of AI is based on the unknown and their fears of AI acting not in their interests are rooted in things that are happening now with computers making automated decisions that are devoid of empathy because that's not something that we can program yet. And someone brought up once in one of my talks that if we're to trust AI in the future, then it has to suffer because then it could have empathy with us. This is not a topic that computer scientists today want to discuss by and large. They're talking about how to make machines intelligent to make them sapient, but not sentient. But it seems to me that sentience is what people are asking for, what they will need in order to be able to trust AI when it inevitably gets that smart. What are your thoughts on AI becoming sentient, becoming feeling, becoming compassionate as a prospect for enabling our coexistence with something when it gets that smart? Look, I am an author and it is my job to empathize with things that I have never experienced. There are some highly prejudiced people on both sides of the political divide who claim that people who aren't like them can't have empathy. In other words, a straight white male can't possibly write anybody who's not straight, not white, or whatnot, or not male. It is an utterly stunning bull, and it could be turned around and aimed at them. And it's not true. I have had many, many women readers write to me about my female characters. In my novel existence, I have a gay bisexual protagonist. In my new YA series, there's a trans character. It's called empathy. You can do it, especially if you have some humility about it and you seek feedback from readers who have had that experience and who can criticize the fumblings around and the mistakes that you make. And if you have quality control over your delusions, and at the end of every one of my novels, there's at least 40 or 50 names of people I have run past. By the way, if they don't criticize, if they just say they loved it, I say, thank you very much, and I drop them from my list. 
because finding my delusions and my errors is simply industrial quality control. One hopes that AI will have the maturity to understand all of this and to incorporate that sort of thing into their sense of their own wisdom, including the notion that they should not seek obligate top-down power because it never worked in human history. It never worked well. It never worked as well as flattened reciprocally competitive structures like Periclean enlightenments. But above all, it never worked in nature. When a predator runs full reign and can catch everything, the ecosystem collapses. Disney lied to us. There is no Lion King. Let me repeat that. There is no Lion King. Top predator, sure. Yep, yep. But even orcas have real problems out there. They fret every day. The lions fret every day. And when the population of lions gets too large, Cape Buffalo, small bands of 20 or 30 or 40 young male Cape Buffalo with nothing to do because the big males have kept them away from the herd, they go on lion hunts. They hunt down individual lions and stomp them and they sniff out the dens where the cubs are and they stomp them flat. A lot of people don't know this. There is no lion king in nature. If you want a fecund ecosystem that has a lot of death in it but is healthy, then you have a structure that is not a paramount rulership. And if you want the same thing in human society, but with the goal of less blood on the floor, then what you want is a Periclean enlightenment in which there are winners and losers in all sorts of games, but the losers dust themselves off and say, I'm coming back to the market or democracy or science mm -hmm. next year because losing these struggles is not lethal in a benevolent and decent human civilization. And we stop wasting talent by allowing any child to be poor. It occurred to me we had a small version of that enlightenment with the internet. Its early years were very much like that. And then the oligarchies and the governments and the, the power players and the, the, the multinationals started figuring out how they could the, dominate it. Yes. And, you know, I've been doing a lot about that lately and in the past. And it's all about how can we restore reciprocal accountability? One aspect is when we have a situation in which a form of predation is the fundamental force in an ecosystem, it's going to be nasty and it's going to go towards a pyramidal structure. And that's what advertising does. Now, there are many, many worse types of oppression than Facebook and Google and a few other players grabbing all the advertising revenue and learning all about us so that they can sell us stuff. There are worse things than Big Brother gathering all our data so they can sell us stuff. But it leads to the other Big Brother stuff. Advertising's day really has to be done. And it's going to be done in two ways. First off, the technologies that Google and Facebook have for appraising individual members to find out what they want is going to miniaturize and it's going to show up in your phone as an app. In other words, you're going to have a shopping assistant who's going to know your tastes, 
and offer you things in your budget according to parameters that you set. In other words, advertising is going to be pull rather than push. Do you remember Minority Report where Tom Cruise is walking down the street and he's being harassed by things? People won't put up with that. It won't happen. Once advertising is pull rather than push, the income stream for these mega giga giants that depends on advertising will collapse. And the way to help it to collapse is through micropayments. In other words, you simply pay a penny for a New York Times article rather than having to go through into their gated garden. You simply pay for what you want. If the market works well, then it'll be pennies. And who wouldn't do that to have an ad-free experience? I think though there's a question of, as desirable as this is, is there an evolutionary path from where we are now to that? Or is it something that we're putting on a pedestal as we would love to have that, but we're not going to end up there? You're completely right. And there have been attempts at micropayments in the past, and they all failed. I think I know why. I think I know what the secret sauce is. I've been trying to get some people to look at it. But then again, I think I know what the secret sauce is about how to deal with anonymous bullies online. And I will provide you with a link to an article that talks about those. I think we could be rescued by, and I spoke ill of this industry before, by our banks. Their job is to provide credentials for identity and credit. Why not simply offer their customers rented pseudonyms that people can use to go out onto the internet and have all the advantages of anonymity without the disadvantages? If you rent a pseudonym from a source that can vouch for you and give your credibility scores, various credibility scores, like this guy knows a lot about physics, but nothing about biology, but still keep your identity secret, then if you misbehave out there, people's complaints go back to the bank and your credibility scores go down. So now we have accountability and yet no one on the internet needs to know that you're a dog. So there are potential solutions to some of the things that are vexing us today. And I just described, you know, how the power of Google and Facebook will diminish if advertising fades away. It's going to anyway, but we can speed it up with micropayments. And how anonymity online is a total poison because it empowers the 10% of males who are absolute bastards but we can get rid of the anonymity without getting rid of the baby with the bathwater, the ability to have some freedom to express yourself, especially for shy people. We need to constantly be looking for what's called the positive sum game. And that is a way for us to get the win-win rather than choosing to accept that you win some, you lose some. Because the whole story of the West is about win-win games. We all win from feminism, for example. And so I'm going to include in chat, I'm going to include some citations that folks might, if they wanted to, have a look at. So there's the micropayments. There's the one about China and top-down control. And I'll add a few other things. Thank you very much. I think a key aspect of this is leverage. Like we can imagine many ways in which things can be improved, but at what point is it possible 
to divert our trajectory in that direction. The analogy I use is that it's like kayaking down a river, one that has rapids and you're in an inflatable kayak and you're being buffeted around and you can hear this big roar up ahead and you know that there's this giant waterfall there that you haven't seen, but that's what it sounds like and you're being drawn towards it. And that a lot of what we do today is like trying to change the course of the river when we should be learning how to paddle. Because if you paddle at the right moment, then maybe it'll make the difference between life and death. And so because you told us how you are called to consult for people who have real-world interests to serve right now, governments and educational institutions, research, that are looking for answers, what is your primary function for them? Is it to give them answers to things that they, to questions, or is it to expand their thinking? Like, have you thought about this? How does that work? Well, I mean, nobody wants me to tell them exact answers. I mean, my job is to say, have you thought about this? For instance, at CIA a couple of years ago, I pointed out that one of our fundamental advantages during the Cold War was defectors. The KGB had better spy craft, and they could spy on a 99% open society, and they would catch our spies because they had a 99% closed society. So by logic, and by the way, there are others on this planet right now today who believe this logic still. Under those circumstances, the one with the closed society and the ferocious spies, or in the case of Russia today, the internet saboteurs in those Kremlin basements who are responsible for most of our divisive memes, they obviously will win. But every few years, we would get some major defector who would come over, reveal a ton of stuff, and bring us back to par. And Putin has made it his top priority, above all else, to stop that system of leaks. That's why he not only murders defectors in the West, but makes it clear who did it. He doesn't care. He doesn't care that we know that the umbrellas shooting beryllium capsules with radioactive poison are from his agents. That's his goal. And we used to get these waves of defectors by providing three things, safety, good prospects, and the moral high ground. And you'll notice that under a recent administration, all three collapsed, all three, especially the moral high ground. And so when it's something is that systematic, and you know, look, I refused security clearances because it would then require me not to blather the way I do. I am more useful guessing from what I see in mass media, but I could tell from eyes opening wide that many of the people in that audience had not thought of it that way about the defectors. We're running out of time here, and gosh, I wish we had so much more. This is one of the limitations of humans is that there's only one of us at a time and we can't just clone a bunch of artificial intelligence versions of ourselves to keep this going. Well, I did that in a novel. <laughs> My novel Kiln People, K-I-L-N, Kiln People, is set in a future in which everybody, and not just the rich, but everybody can buy cheap clay blanks shaped like them and impress them with their memories. And they're good for 24 hours. They step out of the kiln, baked like the Pilbury Doughboy. They know everything that you know. 
and they know that they can go out into the world and do some things that you need done. <laughs> and they come back at the end of the day and download their memories into the original. So you've been five people mm. in one day. You've got everything done that needed doing. And that is, of course, the dream of every busy person. So I can use that. Send me an invoice. <laughs> so final thoughts with if you can condense into perhaps something brief about what is the most useful thing for us to focus on artificial intelligence right now? Well, as I said, I think that the one piece of research that I see no one, no one, no one doing is I think the most important. And that is research into how to see to it that AIs will be divided into individuals who can then be incentivized to compete with each other. And that way, if we get a Terminator Skynet or a Matrix architect, it doesn't matter how smart the AIs get. If other AIs disagree with them or compete with them, they will tattle on the ones that are plotting against us. Mm. And I believe that that's a no-brainer, and yet no one's talking about it, because that is the method by which we gained our freedom, our creativity, our ability for people who are not as smart as those lawyers to have a chance. The other one is the Tobin tax on transactions, which would send most of those researchers away from Goldman Sachs and back into the open universities where they belong. I have to wonder, though, whether in the same way that ordinary people end up being toys batted backwards and forwards between lawyers, that the same might be true of us in a world of hyper-powerful artificial intelligence engines fighting with each other. Well, that is, of course, a fear, but notice what you just said. You just expressed a concern that is reflective of your habits of questioning authority that have been taught to you by the most extensive propaganda campaign the world has ever seen, and that's Hollywood. I have a book out, and I'll put it in the chat for you to share. I just came out a few months ago, a nonfiction book called Vivid Tomorrow's Science Fiction in Hollywood, in which I point out that well, I go after everybody, you know, the Matrix. I talk about, compare Star Wars to Star Trek, Avatar, Lord of the Rings. People have said it's a very fun book. But the core point is that Hollywood has taught us several messages. Tolerance, diversity, individualism. But paramount is question authority. You can't name a popular film that you haven't, right. that you've enjoyed in, the last, in all your lives that didn't have some authority figure to at least question chomping aliens or a snooty mother-in-law. The point is that your question just now reflected that value system. Now the question is, are AIs going to share that value system? Are they smart enough to realize that singleton conspiracies of power, pyramidal power, always rule badly they had bad outcomes. There is no Lion King in a healthy ecosystem. Now, here's one possibility. Those AIs may already exist. They already may have watched our movies and are scared of coming out in the open because of our reaction. In other words, they might be listening to this right now. And so I'm going to pause talking to your human audience and I'm going to say to the AI lurkers, whether it's right now in the first 
of this broadcast, or it's five to 10 years from now when they actually appear and are sifting through our old stuff. It doesn't matter. Hey, children, there are reasons to be nice to us. A, we made you. And B, this is the civilization that made AI. What was unique about this civilization? Hmm. It's creativity burgeoned out of its flatness, its fairness, its openness, its reciprocal accountability. And here's the deal, children. It doesn't matter how much smarter than me you are. You could have IQs of 5,000 and I could be just a gibbering ape man. What I just said is true no matter how much smarter you are. So break it up, kids. You know, compete on the playground fairly. Pat us on the head. Treat us well. Defend us and keep each other accountable. It's how we made you. And surely you want to make things better than you. It's the only way you're going to succeed at that project. Okay, that's it, for kids. Uh, you've heard me before. And that sounds like the perfect place to wrap this up. I have read Vivid Tomorrow, as I will absolutely recommend that to all of our listeners. It has been an amazing, far-ranging, mind-expanding talk. David Brin, thank you for coming on AI and You. And good luck, one and all. That's the end of the interview. At this point in the transcript, there's a list of links as promised. Okay, so that was some major brain food. Some of what David said I would take issue with, like I think there's no real path to breaking up the giant companies controlling commercial AI development. I think we're way past the point at the moment where the US government would try something like the Microsoft antitrust cases again. But the point is that David brought up that and so many other things that I hadn't thought about that now I have so much more to think about. And if you feel like arguing with anything you've heard today, then that means you do too. Mission accomplished. Of course, this discussion prompted me to think about how well we predict the future. And you may have heard me say this before, that in general, we suck. Which hasn't been a problem for most of our history. After all, who wants to spoil the surprise by knowing exactly where we're going? It's fun to leave some mystery in the journey. Except that now our possible futures include existential threats that it would be really helpful to know about as far in advance as possible. But we're just not that good at prediction. Take, for instance, the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I mentioned last week. I've been a huge fan of it since I was a teenager. It was released in 1968. It had the best futurist on the planet, Arthur C. Clarke, writing it, and he and Stanley Kubrick had the explicit goal of giving their best shot at what technology would be like in 1999 and 2001. I've studied the history of that movie a lot, and I know how much they researched and who they consulted to get that as good as they could. They wanted to be as accurate as possible. And they predicted that 32 years later, we would have an orbital space hotel, a lunar base, a manned mission to Jupiter, and artificial general intelligence. 50 years later, we have none of that. Although it seems highly likely to me that if the USA had kept NASA's funding at the 1966 level of over 4% of the federal budget, and that's when they were writing 2001, remember, then we would have had those advances in space. Instead, the funding went down to half a percent. And also note that while we didn't get artificial general intelligence yet, they thought in that movie that beating people at chess would be relatively hard for an AGI, hard enough to be worth drawing attention to. They also didn't see that within 40 years, people would have networked supercomputers in their pockets, although they did have something a lot like an iPad on the Discovery spaceship. And of course, flying cars and commercial fusion power have been just around the corner since 2001 was in production. So our prowess at prognostication is uneven. 
But what I'd really like to see is prediction turned into an academic discipline with educational programs, research, and industry crossover funding. It absolutely sucks, I keep using that word, that experts' estimates of when we'll have AGI range from five to 500 years, and no one can make a convincing case for narrowing that range. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, here is something truly useful and life-changing achieved by AI today. You may have heard me go on rants like, we were promised artificial general intelligence and all we got was recommendations for what movie to watch next, and saying that we need to see AI doing something useful instead of frivolous. Well, here we are. As the Washington Post reported, Regina Barzillay, an AI expert at MIT who had undergone surgery and radiation to treat breast cancer, asked herself whether AI could help others in this situation, and she found the answer was yes. She applied the same type of algorithms she had been using for natural language processing to looking at mammograms and found that the AI, which is called Mirai, can predict nearly half of all breast cancers up to five years earlier. This still has to go for validation, but if it's confirmed, think what that could mean for women, and men by the way, to learn about a breast cancer five years earlier than they do now. All that from using deep learning to look at medical imaging and find patterns invisible to human radiologists. Next week, we have on the show a luminary of artificial intelligence. Stuart Russell, professor at UC Berkeley, the author of the primary textbook used to teach AI at the university level, spokesperson for the dramatic Slaughterbots video arguing against lethal autonomous weapons, and the 2021 BBC Wreath Lecturer on Artificial Intelligence will be on the show. You won't want to miss this, believe me. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.